0: Before I begin, let us speak with our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did send your Son, Jesus, into the world and that what he did and what he said here on this earth has been recorded here in this Gospel of John. We pray that from this event uh, that we have just read of and will hear more of now, They will continue to learn about Jesus, they will be instructed uh, by him as he speaks through his word to us this morning. And we pray that our hearts may be touched and we may grow stronger as your children. Pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Lots of people like to make grand entrances. We talk about making grand entrances often and one of the best ways to make a grand entrance is of course by being late, isn't it? Because of course everybody is going to be there to see you come in. And of course that is the, the way that brides are expected to make the grand entrance on their wedding day. Isn't that right? We don't expect a bride to show up on time or a little bit early for the most important day of her life that it is said to be you think that she would turn up early, if it's that important, but no, she's, she's meant to show up late so that she can make a grand entrance uh, as everyone has already gathered there. You don't want the bride to show up and then people still to be uh, coming in and miss it. People like to make grand entrances and as important people travel about, they travel about in important ways. For example, when the President George Bush takes off from the White House for his short trip over to the Air Force Base in Marine One, Not one but three identical helicopters rise into the sky in what they call an airborne pee and thimble trick and no one knows exactly which helicopter is the President. And it's the same when he goes travelling through the streets in America. A motorcade that uh, often brings Washington's traffic to a standstill. You see them go past their smoked official cars, uh, dozens of them with armour plating, uh, limousines and they race through the streets with sirens blaring and uh, a vanguard of motorcycle police frantically ushering people out of the way and blocking intersection and it makes it impossible to know just who is where in that motorcade of the President travelling around. And then, of course, the last car, it said, in the line often has its tailgate up, and it's bristling with machine guns. When the President goes around, he goes around in a special way. And this morning we're looking at another person making a grand entrance and that is, of course, Jesus Christ as he's coming into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he isn't hidden in a limousine, we see. We see uh, him making a grand entrance in a very different way from the way that George Bush gets around. And so this morning I want to look at that and I want to bring out four points from it and uh, to help us remember them, I've actually been able to make them all begin with the letter P. So uh, we'll work through them and they all begin with the letter P to help us remember them. And the first one I want to draw our attention to is palms. So the first one beginning with P is palms and that's in verse 13 but I'll begin at verse 12. It says of John chapter 12, uh, verse 12 says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting. Now all the Gospels actually record this event of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and others talk about them laying their cloaks on the ground for for Jesus to travel over as we'd roll out a red carpet for a queen. But John is the only one that mentions that the branches that they brought were palm branches. What is the significance of them bringing palm branches to this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem? Well, there's a few reasons why uh, they would bring palm branches. And uh, one is that what the palm tree actually represents. And I am not big on trees. I don't know a lot about different types of trees. But uh, one person has spoken about the palm tree and they say that it is a perpetual vigour and remarkable longevity as it is constantly replenished from deep set roots. So it's a tree that sends down deep roots. In appearance it has a majestic growth and a stately appearance with its trunk rising straight up from the earth and the fronds imitating a magnificent crown. So it seemed to be a, a nice tree to look at. It's a stately tree. And so in Scripture it often takes on the significance of uh, the righteous people of God and we can see that in Psalm 92. Psalm 92 uh, verse 12 talks about palm trees. It says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh, and green proclaiming, the Lord is upright, he is my rock, there is no wickedness in him. Righteous people are spoken of being like palm trees. And so one of the reasons that they're waving these branches around is because they're recognizing the righteousness of Christ. They're recognizing that he is a righteous person. He's like a palm tree. He's flourishing here. And so that is right for them to be bringing the palm branches if that's the significance that they're holding because, of course, he was a righteous person. He was the only man to ever live without sin. And people have started to cotton on to that fact. It wouldn't be too hard to figure out that someone's sinless after a short period of time, particularly if you were the parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, it would be pretty obvious fairly early on if you had other children to compare him to. I'm not sure he would be the greatest brother to have around because you'd always be getting compared to him. Why can't you be more like Jesus? He was sinless. He was righteous. And these people are making a statement. This is a righteous one coming in to Jerusalem. But there's more reasons why, of course, they're using palm branches here and one is, uh, we can take it from Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 in verse uh, 40, speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles, there's actually a divine command to use palm branches here. Leviticus chapter 23, beginning at verse 40, it says, On the first day you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds leafy branches and poplars and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days." There's a divine command there from God to take palm branches to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But that doesn't quite work with the passage we're looking at today because the time that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem is the time of the Passover. It's not the Feast of Tabernacles. So why are people bringing palm branches to a a feast that they weren't supposed to bring palm branches to? Well, we've said it's to indicate the righteousness of of Jesus but it's also, it actually became something that people used to use whenever they started to rejoice. Taking it from the Feast of Tabernacles, they started to wave palm branches around quite often and this took off quite quite a lot in the intertestamental period. Uh, palms were extended to all celebrations and times of thanksgiving. And we see that in uh, one of the apocryphal books, uh, not one of our books of the Bible, but one that we use to find out history of the Jews in the intertestamental period, the Maccabees. Uh, When they throw off, the Jews throw off the Syrian rulers of Jerusalem, they have a Jewish conqueror coming into Jerusalem and they... Uh, they're giving this great time of thanksgiving and they're waving palm tree- branches from palm trees along with music from harps and cymbals. So that's in the book of Maccabees. It's telling us uh, that over that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, palm branches were used in times of festivals. And so the palm branch actually started to become the national symbol. For the Jews, and the, the rebels often stamped them on the coins that they had to state that we we endorse the palm branch as a symbol for us, and it's a time for festivals. And then we see that this is, of course, taken up in uh, later on, uh, much further on from the time that we're looking at today with Jesus in John chapter 12. We see it with John again writing in Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Revelation chapter 7, John is looking uh, to heaven. He's having a vision here in Revelation chapter 7 and he says in verse 9, After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. So there's this great multitude there in heaven They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So it's quite obvious in the Bible that palm branches have taken on this great celebratory significance that whenever you're having a celebration and rejoicing over someone or something then you start to wave palm branches around. And so that's why they've got them here waving them frantically around when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem because they are saying this is a great reason for celebration. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He is righteous and true. And of course the, the time of the Passover uh, would have uh, emphasised this experience of celebration because when the Jews had the Passover they were of course remembering the time when they were brought out of slavery uh, from Egypt and they would be now expecting that Jesus is going to be bringing the new exodus, that he's going to be releasing them from slavery to the Roman Empire. And so they're welcoming him in as basically that conquering king, just like uh, the Jews did in in Maccabees when their conqueror came in. They are welcoming Jesus in as this conquering king. They're expecting him to throw off the Roman yoke. They're expecting him to be a military leader. And we see that often in the Gospels that the people are gathering around him expecting him to take over. They want him to be king. They actually try to make him king by force at times. And this is quite reasonable really when you, when you think about it. I mean he would be the best military leader you could think of. Just before this passage he has raised Lazarus from the dead. He obviously is able to bring people back to life. Now what soldier would not want to go into battle if your king, your military leader, was able to raise you from the dead every time you died. He would be the greatest military commander to serve under. And, of course, the people have seen him feed the 5,000, feed the 4,000 from a very small amount of food. It would make uh, military campaigns very easy if all you had to do was take a little bit of food and every time you needed provisions for the troops, he would just bless it and everyone would feed quite happily and you save a little bit of that for the next time and you just keep going on. It was one, it's one of the big problems in military campaigns as they move very quickly, where are they going to get food from to feed all the troops? He would be the best military leader to have around. And so we see them waving these palm branches, not just because they're celebrating him as a great person, but because they're expecting him to be the conquering king. He is coming in to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And so the palm branches really do have a great significance here. So that's the palm branches. That's my first point beginning with P. My second point is about praise. So it begins with P as well. Praise. And so we see in in these verses, we see the people are praising him by saying something in particular. We see it in verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now that... uh Word in verse 13, the word shouting, is in the imperfect tense in the Greek and so it, it can mean, it, it's continuous, it's going on and on and on again. It's, it's not like they're saying hurrah, hurrah, hurrah or the Aussie um, way of doing things is Aussie, 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 oi, 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 and then it sort of finishes. They're, they're saying these things over and over again. It, it's going on all the while, it wasn't just once. But what are they saying? Well, there's three parts to their praise of him and the first one is Hosanna, there in verse 13, Hosanna. Now that is a transliteration of the Old Testament word uh, hoshea and John is writing in the Greek here but he is uh, preserving the Hebrew word over here because that's what the people would have been singing. Hosanna to, to Jesus. Now what does Hosanna mean? We often have it in hymns and songs and we sometimes sing those without actually thinking too much about what they actually mean. And we take on these um, Christian words. What does it mean? Well, if you ever forget, the the best way to to remember is to follow footnotes in your Bible. Often footnotes are very um, helpful and people ignore them at times and if you've got the NIV there, of course there's a little C next to it and that takes you down to the bottom, uh, C13, a Hebrew expression meaning save which became an exclamation of praise. And that's what the word Hosanna means. It means save. It's an imperative. It's a command to God but it's obviously from lower people so uh, they're saying please save to God. They're, They're commanding him save, 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 save. And they're actually quoting from Psalm 118. We know that because the next part of the praise comes from Psalm 118 as well. Psalm 118 verse 25 Psalm 118 verse 25 reads, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. That is what these people are crying out. And that is right fitting with, of course, them expecting him to be a military leader. They're wanting saving from the oppression of the Romans to them. And, of course, it is right for them to be crawling out save to Jesus because he is the one who can save them from their sins. He is the one who can save them from bondage to Satan. He is the one who can save. And that is who we should be going to for salvation as well. We should be crying out, Hosanna, Lord save us. That's what we cry out when we become a Christian. We go to Jesus for salvation. We don't go to Allah. We don't go to to Buddha or something else. It is only Jesus who can save. He's the only one you can call out Hosanna to. That's what we do when we become a Christian. We ask him to save us. But we don't just call out Hosanna once in our life. We should be calling out Hosanna to Jesus over and over again for the people that we love and care about. We should be calling out Hosanna for our family members who do not know Jesus. We should be crying out Hosanna for our friends who do not know Jesus. We should be crying out Hosanna, save now for our nation, for Australia that is so dark in so many places and has no knowledge of Jesus. We should be crying out Hosanna for the world, for dark, even darker places than Australia that have no gospel light in them. We should be crying out hosanna for suburbs like Remoin where we see that so few people are showing up at church on Sunday. How often do you cry out hosanna? These people knew who to cry out hosanna to. Do you cry out hosanna to Jesus? Well, that's the first part of their praise. The second part of their praise is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that of course is a continuation of Psalm 118 so they uh, would have been carrying on there. Psalm 118 verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, from the house of the Lord we bless you. Now what is it to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Well, uh, it is often that expression, coming in the name of the Lord, is used often of people in the Old Testament it is used of prophets. They are said to come in the name of the Lord. They say the Lord is saying this and they're speaking on behalf of God. And it's also used of kings. They come in the name of the Lord at times as well to rule under God, uh, God's command. They're coming in the name of the Lord. So it is right that these people are saying blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They know that Jesus has been speaking the words of God. He is a great prophet and he is what they expect, uh, expecting to be, a great king. So they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But some of them would have recognised that he is fulfilling coming in the name of the Lord greater than any prophet or king that has ever come before because he is the Lord. He's not just a representative of God He is the Lord. He is coming in the name of the Lord because it is his name. He is the one that comes in the name of the Lord. And so, of course, then, just as people should have paid attention to any prophet that was sent in the name of the Lord, to any king that was sent in the name of the Lord, they should pay even more attention to this one who comes in the name of the Lord. These people were paying great attention to Jesus as he came in and they were expressing how much attention they were paying by saying, he's coming in the name of the Lord. And we should as well. We should recognise that Jesus comes in the name of the Lord but in such a greater way than any other person who came in the name of the Lord before him because he is the Lord himself. So that's the the second point of praise. The third part of the praise is Blessed is the King of Israel. It's there in verse 13. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now this doesn't come from Psalm 118, so previously you can see that they were singing the psalm, but they've added this in. And this really uh, puts a a final lid on the fact that they really do expect him to be the king. As he's coming in, they're expecting him to take over and release them uh, from the Roman yoke that is upon them. And it shows that they also see that Psalm 118 as a messianic psalm, that they really do see Jesus as, as coming as the great Messiah, the promised one who would release them from uh, slavery and would bring great peace and prosperity. And so we, we recognise that this is true, that he is the king of Israel he didn't, necessarily, he didn't come to set up a kingdom in the way that they were expecting as a military commander but it is right for them to call him the king of Israel because he is king. He is ruling right now. We don't see him as we see other people but he is the king of Israel. He's the king of the whole world. After his death and resurrection he sat down at the right hand of God and he's sitting there ruling right now. It's not just captivated in this book so many years ago that he is the King of Israel. He really is the King and we should serve him as his servants under his his rule. So that is my point about praise. We've had palms, praise. Now we've got my third point is about prophecy. Prophecy. And that is in verse 14 we see Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Now we saw that that is indeed a prophecy in the book of Zechariah that this event was predicted in the book of Zechariah so many years before Jesus came into Jerusalem and this affirms him as the true Messiah. He is the one fulfilling the prophecies. It is true that he is the Messiah. Prophecy is important to look at because it authenticates who Jesus is. It makes us realise, yes, he really was someone very special. He wasn't just an ordinary person. He fulfilled these prophecies. But part of the prophecy is also important to note, not just the fact that it is a prophecy for itself, but the way that the prophecy is being fulfilled in that he comes on a donkey's colt. He comes on a donkey. Now why does he come on a donkey? Well, these people will of course, expecting this great ruling king, this great military commander coming in, they would have expected him to come on a a white horse because that is how the kings would travel around. Just as President Bush travels around in an an armour-plated limousine, people in those days, they travelled around on white horses if they were uh, kings and military leaders. But he comes on a donkey. Now... A donkey was used by a peaceable civilian, a merchant or a priest but it was also connected with people of importance at times as well. Of course the kings didn't ride them but people who were important would often come on a donkey as a sign of peace. They would come on the donkey because they're saying, I'm not coming to bring military oppression on you, I'm coming in a peaceful way but I'm still an important person. And that is what Jesus is doing. By coming on the donkey, he is saying, I am coming in a peaceful way to you. So the donkey is speaking to us. Uh, We can race over that without thinking too much about it. It's not speaking the same way that Balaam's donkey speaks in the Old Testament where it actually opens its mouth and starts talking. But the donkey is speaking of peace. It's a symbol of peace. Just as we see the palms are a symbol of something, so we see this donkey is a symbol of peace. And then it is, of course, drawn out in the prophecy itself. We see in verse 15, the prophecy says, Do not be afraid. There is a command there to the daughter of Zion, Do not be afraid. I'm coming in a peaceful way. Now, it is true that Jesus comes in a peaceful way to us, but it is important to note that he comes in a peaceful way to us, to the people of God. And it's there in the text as well. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. A specific group of people is not to be afraid. The daughter of Zion, God's people. And of course that means conversely that the people who aren't a part of the daughter of Zion are to be afraid. You know Those, those texts that we like to, to trawl out at Christmas time like God is with us, You know, it sounds like God's with everyone, but it's not. It's important to note that it says God with us and not with you. You've got to be careful that you're on the right side. Because Jesus comes with peace to those he loves, to those who belong to him, to his people. But later on, he does come on a white horse. And John himself makes this clear in Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. 19 verse 11 says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus sitting on the white horse. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus, when he comes into Jerusalem, is speaking of peace but it is to a particular group of people. It is to his people. He will one day judge the nations with a sword coming out of his mouth, with an iron scepter. He will come on his white horse and he will be bringing the wrath of God. People love to talk about Jesus being a God of love and I can do whatever I like then because God still loves me. No, he will judge you one day. John wants to make that clear in his prophecy. He he has seen what will happen. That Jesus will return with great wrath And blood is a part of that picture. There will be shedding of blood. And we have to make certain that we do belong to the daughter of Zion. Have you committed your life to Jesus? Are you one of his people? Because then the prophecy is do not be afraid. But if you're not, if you haven't repented, then be afraid this prophecy isn't for you unless you repent of your sins and begin to follow him. So the prophecy doesn't just speak of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah it's also a warning. It's also a very stern warning. So that's my third point it's about prophecy. My fourth and final point beginning with P is people. Now people can be broken up into a couple of groups as well because there's uh, actually, three groups of people, and that is the crowds, it's the Pharisees, and the disciples. We see them all in this passage, and the crowd is the most obvious group because they're the one doing all the praising, they're the ones waving the palm branches around. But there's actually two crowds apparent. You might actually miss it if you uh, if you go through the passage too quickly. The first crowd is the the obvious one in verse 12. It says, "The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast, talking of the Passover." heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. The first crowd is the one that are are, are coming for the feast. And so they're the ones who would have heard of Jesus quite well. They may actually have have been a part of all that his ministry was taking on before he comes into Jerusalem to his death. These are people who may have been healed by Jesus in the regions of Galilee. They may have heard him at the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Plain. They would have known of Jesus and they are coming to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And they're the ones who are acknowledging who he is. They're the ones saying he's the one with salvation, he's the king, he's the one coming in the name of the Lord. And as they come up to uh, Jerusalem, one thing that we should remember is that at Jerusalem, when the time of the Passover was coming on, people had to do a particular thing with the Passover, and that was sacrifice a lamb and well, they had to eat a lamb together as a remembrance of them being saved from the angel of death in the old testament and so at this time, there would have been many people coming in for the Passover, and of course, they would have needed lots of lambs for this event as well. Now, this crowd of pilgrims could have been very large, one early historian Josephus, a Jewish historian who we often refer to for informations about the, the time of the New Testament. He actually estimates that 2.7 million people would have been coming as pilgrims to Jerusalem. Now Josephus is known to be an exaggerator, and 2.7 million is an awful lot of people for a city of that time. And so modern historians would reduce that number to around 150,000. But it's still an awful lot of people going up to that city. And so they would have needed many lambs. And now uh, Josephus estimates that one year a census was taken of the lambs and there was 256,500 Lambs in the city for that Passover celebration. Now of course he is prone to exaggeration but it still is important to note that there would have been a lot of lambs needed for the Passover. And so it is very likely that as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem there would have been many lambs being ushered by shepherds up to Jerusalem specifically so for the Passover feast. And so we would have this great image of Jesus coming into Jerusalem surrounded by lambs and he himself is the greatest lamb. He is a lamb himself. He is off to the slaughter for the payment of the sins of the world. Just as those lambs were being taken up to remember when uh, when the angel of death passed over them, the blood was shed so that uh, people would be saved, so Jesus is going into Jerusalem for the same thing. He is going in so that his blood would be shed for the payment of my sin, for the payment of your sin, for the payment of all those who believe. He is the great Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as these people come up and we know that they're coming up as pilgrims, they give us an important clue that this would have been uh, uh, so many lambs there pointing to the fact that Jesus is the great Lamb of God. But the second crowd is another crowd that's towards the end of the passage. We see it in verse 18. Uh, and we get a clue to them. We'll begin at verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And then verse 18. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So we've got this second crowd coming from Jerusalem. The other crowds going in with him for the celebration of the feast. We've got this second crowd coming out. And what is this second crowd coming out for? Are they coming out to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? No, they're coming out because they've heard of the miracle that he did in raising Lazarus from the dead. And they're coming out basically to see a miraculous sign. They want to see something spectacular happen. They aren't interested in Jesus for who he is, they're interested in him for the miraculous signs that he does. And this sadly is the attitude of so many people today as well. They're only interested in Jesus for the miraculous signs that they expect that if there is a God there then he's supernatural and he can do supernatural things for me. And sadly that is a great uh, problem with the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic churches. They are so fixated on experiences and signs and miracles that that's all they're interested in. Now I'm not saying that there's no Christians within the Pentecostal church and charismatic churches but one of the big problems with them is that they are so interested in miracles that it absorbs everything and if you can't speak in tongues then you're a poorer Christian if not possibly not a Christian at all. I can actually deny you as being a Christian and so they're constantly looking for experience. And that is the group of people coming out to meet Jesus. They're looking for an experience. They're looking for a great sign. But that's so often something that we do as well. We're only interested in Jesus and God when things are going well for us, when God appears to be blessing us. But as soon as problems come along, as soon as some suffering comes up in our life, we are quick to say... God's not interested in me, so I'm not interested in him. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to read my Bible because he's not doing anything for me. I'm not having a good experience. I'm not having a pleasant experience anymore. And so I'm not interested in serving God. And that is a temptation that we all feel when we suffer, that we blame God and we say, well, I'm not going to be interested in you anymore. I'm only interested in you when things are going well. And that would have been, this crowd would obviously have been part of that crowd that later on was saying crucify him, crucify him. People say crowds are fickle, particularly when they're only interested in experiences. When they haven't seen something happen and they're enjoying the heat of the moment of we might get to see a crucifixion out of this, they're ready to cry crucify him, crucify him. I always wondered about that when I was growing up. Where did this crowd come from that was ready to crucify him when they all seemed to be so happy when he comes into Jerusalem so it just a little time earlier? And it's because we are so ready to cry crucify him, crucify him when things aren't going our way, when we aren't interested in him anymore for the things that we can get from him. And that's what we do when we blame God and we turn away from him. We're crying, crucify him, crucify him, just as this crowd would have been doing later on in the week. Then of course there is uh, the, the second group of people is the Pharisees. The Pharisees in verse 19. We see them there witnessing this event. So the, fa- uh, so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now these people aren't as obvious uh, against Jesus as the, the second crowd that we saw there going out there for a miraculous sign. The Pharisees are pretty plain that they're against God. They're against Jesus. They're against all that Jesus is doing and they're quite jealous of him. And... We see their influence being eroded and that's what they are jealous about. The whole world is going after him and so they, this event actually provokes them to do something about Jesus. We need to settle this before it gets any further. And so they, are, they continue in their plans to kill him. The, we, can't, we can't be patient any longer We can't let this go on. We have to kill him. We have to get rid of him. We have to make sure this man is properly disposed of because more and more people are going after him. But the great irony of this crowd, this group of people, these Pharisees, is that as they fight against God... All they do is fulfil God's plans and purposes. The only thing they accomplish is adding more guilt to themselves, more sin to their lives, more punishment for themselves. Because as they are motivated by this event to kill Jesus, Jesus' death accomplished so much that they would have been so opposed to the fact that Jesus was paying for the sins of so many people and so many people after this crowd were going to embrace Jesus because of what he did at the cross. They thought they could get rid of this whole movement by crucifying Jesus. But in the end, you can't fight against God. His sovereign purposes will always be fulfilled. All you end up doing is amassing more guilt for yourself and prolonging your your uh, your punishment it goes on and on in heaven uh, in hell forever and ever that's all they can do it's a great irony that when we fight against god we aren't really fighting against him at all we aren't stopping anything any of his plans or purposes and then the third and final group of people are of course the disciples we see them in verse 16 At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now we often like to think that the disciples knew what was going on but of course they had no idea what was going on most of the time. They are often portrayed in the Gospels as making uh, false moves and not really uh, getting it together and they did not understand this entry either into Jerusalem. When did they understand? Well, it's there in verse 16. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him. What does it mean to, for Jesus to be glorified? Well, John usually speaks of Jesus being glorified in the sense of him at the cross, where he is doing what God approves of, where he is paying the sin for the sins of the world. And we see that there in verse 23, just a few verses down. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he goes on to speak of his death. He's speaking of his death when he speaks of being glorified. And that is how we come to understand all of Christianity. If we get it right with the cross, with Jesus' death, then our understanding of all of Jesus' movements, all his... his uh, sermons, his, his words, they all start to fall into place and the rest of the Old Testament falls into place as well. If we misunderstand the cross, if we don't get the cross right, then we can't make sense of the rest. We try and push it and, and mould it into a way that it seems to be understandable to us. Dif- difficult doctrines, difficult things, difficult sayings in the Bible and it's because we, if we don't get the cross right then they won't fall into place. Just as these disciples didn't understand what was going on until after Jesus was glorified, until they, his death occurred, then it is the same with us. We need to have the cross as the central part of our understanding of God and as the central part of our church. And so uh, what have we learnt this morning then? We've learned that the palms indicate that Jesus is righteous and he's a reason for rejoicing for these people, that he was the saviour in their praise. They talked about him being a saviour. He came in the name of the Lord. He is the king. And then in the prophecy, the prophecy tells us that he's a real messiah and that he's peaceful towards those who belong to him. Now we've got to ask ourselves, which group of people do we belong to? Are we like those nominal uh, are we nominal Christians, like that crowd coming out, we're only interested in God and Jesus for what we, can, what we can experience from them, the good things that we want? Or are we true Christians, like these disciples, who understand once we get the cross right, once we understand that the cross is about the payment of our sins and that we need to repent, are we like those disciples and can understand the rest of Jesus' teachings about us. Well, let us speak with our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you did send your Son into this world. We thank you that you more than just sent him in as a baby in a manger, but that you sent him to die for our sins, that that is the moment when Jesus was truly glorified, when he was seen to be satisfying in your eyes, and as a result you raised him from the dead as a sign and seal of approval by yourself. We pray that we will always be seeking to put the cross before others, before people who do not know you, and making sure they understand what the cross is all about because it is then that we can understand the rest of of your glorious kingdom, of your words, of everything about you. We need to become your children, a part of the daughter of Zion. And we pray that we'll never be attracted to simply experiences and never want to turn away from you purely because you are not doing what we want, but that we'll always be wanting to do what you want and living for you and obeying your commands. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, Joel. (coughs) As we uh, prepare ourselves to uh, have a communion together, let's just stand to sing just the first three verses of a hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for...